We're back here now with the book of Revelation, and we close chapter 3 with a closed door, and we start chapter 4 with an open door. Remember, chapter 3 ended with the words of Jesus as he spoke to the church of Laodicea, and he said, Behold, I stand at the door and I knock. If any man will hear my voice and open the door, I will come in. The door was closed to Christ. He was trying to get in to that church. So this reminds us, if we will open the door of our hearts to Christ, one day he will open the door of heaven to us. Now as we come to Revelation chapter 4, the camera swings. So we've been looking at earth, and what's happening here. Now suddenly we're looking at it from a heavenly perspective. We're seeing it from God's viewpoint. There's a major shift from Revelation 3 to Revelation chapter 4. Welcome to the Doxa Dialogue, a podcast about living life on mission for the glory of God. My name is David Rudy, and I am the pastor of Doxa Church. For those of you who go to Doxa Church, we've been in 1 Thessalonians, and I have just preached a two-part sermon on the end times. The first message was from chapter 4 called The Attractive Kind of Crazy, where we looked at the rapture of the church. And the second message was called Awake at Night Next to a Drunk on the Day of the Lord. Now, both of these messages, if you haven't heard them, I would invite you to go check those out on our website, docsupstate.church. You can find it there. You can also find the podcast, the Doxa Church podcast. But both of these were about a proper theological understanding of our Savior's return. And how if we have that, it gives us hope in grief. It gives us confidence in turmoil. And overall, it frees us up to love. So after preaching on the rapture and the day of the Lord, I told the church, look, I'm going to undertake something that I've wanted to do for a long time. And that's do a separate podcast on the end times. And this podcast is timely for our church because in the weeks ahead in Second Thessalonians, we're going to see a lot more references to the end times. And this is a pretty intimidating topic. It can easily get overwhelming. So here's how I want to break it down for you. What are we doing in this particular episode? I'm going to talk about three main headings. First of all, why it matters, and why you should care. I think that's very important, If you, especially if you missed the last two sermons I preached. It's easy to miss that point. Secondly, an overview of the three big views of the end times in Christianity. And then thirdly, I am going to make my case for pre-trib, pre-millennialism. I know big words, (laughs) and if you've been intimidated by them in the past, you are going to master them in the next 30 to 40 minutes, however long this podcast goes. But my question for you is not, are you ready to embrace your inner theology geek side? We may touch on that a little, (laughs) but that's not what this is really all about. This is a podcast overall that is about living our life for the glory of God, walking with Jesus, abiding in Christ. 
And this is a very underrated, overlooked aspect of the Christian life to have a working understanding of what to expect. It may not be completely right, but at least to have an idea of what's going on. And the person that this podcast is really not for in this specific episode is the person who's already made up their mind. And they're just a critic of everyone else. This can be a topic of scorn, ridicule, condescension, even in Christianity, for people who don't look at it the same way I look at it. And I'm going to be honest about my positions here. I will tell you what I think, and I'm going to go a step further and talk through some details in this podcast than I normally even would. I wouldn't probably go as far into something like this on a Sunday morning. But my spirit isn't to argue or look down on anyone else. I'm going to be real and raw about some of my opinions and some of my takes, but I love all my brothers and sisters in Christ. And this should absolutely be a topic that we hold graciously and we hold loosely. So if you love conspiracy theories and you're curious about what Christians think is going to happen in the future, this podcast is for you. If you're a Christian and you want to learn more because you are pretty lost when it comes to a topic on the end times, this podcast is for you. If you're looking for a debate, this is not your podcast episode. And as we get into this, I will most definitely share why I believe what I believe, why I think it's important. But I'm always open to a discussion. And it's not my goal to convince you I'm right. It's my goal to point you to Christ. So with those ground rules in place, let's dive in to the first heading. Why it matters and why you should care. From my experience, I think there's four general ways to look at the end times. And three of them are problematic and one of them is healthy. So first one, I'm right, everyone else is missing it completely, and they are just not as spiritually discerning as I am. This is obviously prideful and disunifying. That's not the spirit of this podcast. Not that many people go that extreme. They're out there, though. The next two are far more common. Number two is, I don't think it really matters. Jesus is coming back. So the details on how it shakes out aren't really my concern. And I get that is a position that a lot of people take. And a lot of people take that position because they've seen the first person I just talked about. They've seen some of that, and it puts a bad taste in their mouth. And I understand why you would go to that second position. Here's the third position Christians have. I don't have time to invest in this because it's too confusing. (laughs) Now, both the second and the third person there, it's understandable. But here's what happens if you're in that place you're missing out on the blessings of understanding the end times and understanding something about the seasons to come. And it's pretty obvious that many Christians are apathetic and lazy about their faith. And that's very sad. And the truth of the matter is, both of those last two attitudes that I just talked about contribute to that apathy. If we aren't serious about all of Scripture, and if we're not hungry to learn the most we possibly can about who God is and what he has for us and what he wants us to know 
eventually you're going to lead to a dry spell and get apathetic. So here's the person that I want you to be, the fourth type of person. You hold a position, not too tightly, but enough so that it's on your mind and it motivates and inspires you to seek the return of the Lord. And I think if you have the right perspective on the end times, you will have no fear in death. And that's when you'll be the attractive kind of crazy to those around you who don't hold the same hope. That's also when your faith can free you up to love. You will be awake as a child of the day while the children of the darkness are spiritually drunk all around you. The end times is a fascinating study. And whether you realize it or not, you do believe something. And your faith in this area does affect how you navigate this present life that we are in. It affects how you look at the world, it sets your expectations, and it either builds up your hope and confidence in Christ, or it doesn't do anything for it at all. So it is very important, and it doesn't need to be neglected. Now, there are a few more very practical reasons on why it matters, but to go any further with this, I need to start breaking it down in the specific categories. So let's dive in to the overview of the three main views. Here are the three main views. Post-millennialism, pre-millennialism, ah-millennialism. All three of these views revolve around when Christ returns. Every Christian is expecting Jesus to come back. We can all agree on that. Some of us call it something different. We think it's at different times. But all of these views all revolve around, is it after the millennium, which is the thousand-year rule and reign of Christ that's in Revelation 20. You can't miss that. Well, if you think Christ is returning after the millennium, you're a post-millennialist, post-mill. Probably call it that way for the rest of the podcast. Does Christ return before the millennium? That's pre-mill. Or is there no literal millennium? It's actually being fulfilled spiritually right now. Well, then, if you believe that, you are amen. Ah, meaning no millennium. There's no literal millennium. So let me talk about post-millennialism first. I'm not going to spend as much time on this one because, not to sound condescending here at all, but from my perspective and the perspective of many others, this is the shakiest position of all. It's actually really died down. It's not as popular in 2023. It has seen a minor uptick probably over the last four to five years. Amillennialism was hot for a decade. Premillennialism was all the rage in the 80s and 90s. And who knows? Postmillennialism could see a resurgence as well. That's usually how these things go. They all cycle in popularity through the decades and through the centuries. But if you ever come across someone who holds to dominion theology, they are almost certainly a post-millennialist. So they believe that Jesus Christ will come after the millennium. And that means that Christians will evangelize the world. And in the last days, instead of things getting worse and worse, they will get better and better. So it's a very positive belief. They truly believe revival will shake the world and we will experience a spiritualized version 
of the millennial kingdom on earth and that it's our job as Christians to change the culture and win the day. And that's a noble goal, no doubt. I'm not going to argue with evangelizing and turning the culture upside down and seeing lives change. Of course, I mean, that's what we're all for here. We're all here for that, right? A lot of these Christians are huge advocates against abortion clinics. They are praying for revival. Both things that all Christians should be for and against. But at the end of the day, they think that the world will get better and better and that Christians will save the world and usher in God's kingdom. And when we get it right, Jesus is coming back. That's what they believe. Now, there's definitely some good side effects to this view. These believers aren't apathetic. They aren't sitting around. They care for God's kingdom. But those good motivations can also go too far. And in their zeal, they can fall into a us versus everyone else mentality. An almost cocky mentality that looks down on the lost. And to flip the return of Christ on its head and say it comes after we've done our job and turned the world into a Christian utopia, I'm just going to be honest. I think it's pretty misguided. Now, in one sense, that is our goal. We are to reach the lost and change culture as much as we can. But as a premillennialist myself, I believe at the end of the day, I'm going to do my part, but Satan is still the ruler of this present darkness. He's still the prince in the power of the air. And I'm taking all the passages that talk about the last days of the end times as being as the days of Noah. I'm taking those passages in their historical, grammatical, and literal context. And I'm not going to spiritualize any of that away. I think it's going to get darker towards the end. I'm not trying to be a pessimist. I just think that's the reality of the picture that God's word paints for us. Postmillennialists can easily get off track and become harsh and prideful. Are you starting to see how your end times view does affect your daily Christian life? So in their pursuit of ushering in the kingdom, they can also get snarky, overly critical of other Christians. That's the ugly side of it. Postmillennialism is usually popular in good decades. Not always, historically speaking. The Puritans were mostly post-mill. But in America, post-mill had its heyday right after World War I and right before World War II. Once we saw a second madman rise to power and try to conquer the world, the devastation of World War II, a lot of people backed off post-millennialism, positive thinking, and they saw the reality of the darkness of this world. And I'm not going to go too much further into the specifics of post-mill because in my humble opinion, it doesn't hold a candle to the proof texts and the rigorous discipline of the other two positions, amillennialism and premillennialism. It honestly breaks the rules for literal, consistent interpretation the same type of thing the Amil position does, but it doesn't have half the answers that Amil has. And it's just an all-around very weak position compared to the other two. A post-mill person would interpret Christ riding in on a white horse in Revelation 19 as the progress of the gospel 
in the present age. They would do stuff like that. So that's where I land. And honestly, post-millennialists are their own breed. They don't play very well with others. And it's pretty rare to find a hardcore like person who knows what they're talking about post-millennialists intermingling with an ah-mill believer or a pre-mill believer. I hate to say that, but it's just the way it works. But if you are post-mill and you're listening to this, thank you for breaking the mold. Please keep listening. We love you, all right? Next, let's talk about amillennialists. Now, this position is coming from the Reformed camp, and they love to pick holes at dispensationalism, if you know what I'm talking about there. And they love having a good laugh out of the timelines and the Left Behind movies and some of the wilder aspects of premillennialism that isn't always very accurately taught or as rigorous as it should be because every family has some kooks, right? But like many Reformed Presbyterians, they have certainly been known to turn their proverbial nose up at the Baptist and the non-denominational premillennialists. Amillennialists don't believe in a literal 1,000-year reign of Christ. So they take Revelation 20, and they will be really, really big on this is apocryphal literature. You're going to hear that a lot from an amillennialist. You're also going to hear a lot of nowhere else in Scripture besides this one passage in Revelation does the Bible specify a literal 1,000-year period of time. They love to talk about that, which isn't a particularly strong argument for me, but they spiritualize many of the texts, basically all of the texts, that talk about specifics in the end times prophecy. And they do this. I mean, you're going another thing you're going to hear a lot is like John was speaking in this coded language because he was trying to protect the church from Rome. And honestly, when you just read scripture at face value, there isn't nearly as much of that as they make it sound like. But they will say that we are living in the millennium right now in a spiritual sense. So Amil believers keep it really simple. They love to go back to the reformers and they love to trash James Darby, you know, the dispensational guy. You'll even hear them say like every, every Christian was, was Amil, believed the same way we believed up until the 1800s. That's not true at all. We'll get into that later. But they will say that Christ will return, and immediately following that, that's the judgment. Really simple. (laughs) Very simple. It's like we live our life, Christ comes back, and it's the judgment, and it's the new heaven and the new earth. It's pretty much in that order. So they say that right now, Jesus Christ is ruling and reigning spiritually. So the thousand years isn't an exact period of time. It's the current age that we're in right now. And at the end of the day, despite all of that, what I just shared with you, amillennialists and premillennialists can coexist pretty well. You wouldn't think that. But the functional applicational pieces of looking at the end times aren't that far apart. 
So amil and premil, even though they sound the furthest apart, they can actually get along really well in the same church. The postmills, not so much. Their position is, is more functionally different. But premill and amil, we both believe Jesus will come back, and we don't have anything to do with that. It's completely up to him, and it's not dependent on us at all. But even there, a true amillennialist is going to take the passages that deal with the tribulation, and they are going to spiritualize those and say that they are talking about the final days on earth. I'm going to get more into this later, but a consistent amillennialist can't truly focus on the imminent return of Christ, meaning Jesus could come back at any time, like the disciples in the early church and all of the other church fathers, like Irenaeus and Papias and Justin Martyr, they were all historic premillennialists, as was basically all of the early church up until the reformers broke out of Catholicism and they had the very simple end times theology. But in the Amil view, you do need to see some things take place first. And many of these things are pulled from passages of Scripture that describe the tribulation period. So, to review, amillennialists spiritualize the 1,000-year millennial reign of Christ. It's not literal, and it's not exactly 1,000 years either. It's right now. Christ is ruling and reigning spiritually. He's on the throne. And for the amillennialist, there is no literal rapture. There's no literal tribulation. There's just a second coming of Christ, period, and then the judgment. So if you're looking for me to talk through all the defensive points for a amill position, this is not your podcast. I just don't have time to do that in this one. I will say they do have an answer for all of the points pre-mill has. And if you want to listen to a good summary of it, just jump on YouTube and look up Thomas Schreiner from Southern Seminary. He leans on mill, and he has a 20-minute video that goes into detail about the six biggest points and counterpoints between Amil and Premill. I would let him do that for you, not me. I don't think he does the best job representing the Premill position, in my opinion, just like... A true amillennialist probably wouldn't think i do the best job of representing them. And again, what you're going to hear a lot of is this is apocalyptic literature and John was describing things that he didn't understand. He had all these different windows, which to a certain extent is true. Like John doesn't know how to explain everything. He's just writing some of this stuff down. And yeah, there's a window here and then he sees something here. And it's not like a perfect timeline that we get, but it's not nearly as big of a deal as they make it sound if you just open up your Bible and read through the book of Revelation. So their entire case, it's going to come down to, we can't take that literally, and we can't take this literally. And they end up spiritualizing pretty much most of the New Testament end times prophecies, which is a little weird because that's not how we interpret the rest of the Bible. They end up chucking out the entire 70 weeks of Daniel. This is where my dispensational pre-mill friends would have a cow, but I'm not even going to get into any of that today. But they will take a passage like Revelation 19 and Revelation 20, or even 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5, to a lesser degree. And they will say 
This is not talking about a sequence. This is just recapitulation. It's just recapping what was previously said and saying it in a different way. So there's no sequence here at all. Their position is Jesus comes back, the dead are raised, and we go straight to the judgment. And for them, chapters that talk about Satan being cast to the earth, and then later when you have other passages that say Satan is cast into the abyss, two different situations if you're interpreting Scripture naturally— the way it's intended to be read, the way we interpret Scripture in every other case, an Amil person is going to say that's the same thing, describing Satan deceiving the nation of Israel right now. That's really where they land on stuff like that. And I can't stress this enough. In their view, we are living in the millennium right now, and I just don't see that. I still see Satan deceiving and twisting the truth, and I think it's a very sad way to look at the millennium. And at the end of the day, I personally can't get around the idea of not interpreting Scripture consistently. Over and over again, they have to take a concept in the prophets or in Revelation. They have to ignore the sequencing, and they just chalk it all up as imagery in the language. So we do need to talk about that, but I believe that is a problem. How you interpret Scripture matters. Thankfully, most modern-day amillennialists keep it to things like prophecy or the covenants, but a lot of churches over the decades and over the centuries have drifted away from doctrinal truth through spiritualizing vast portions of Scripture and ignoring things they don't like and even going to extremes with it. It's a problem to interpret the Bible in an allegorical way. Now, you see New Testament authors sometimes pointing things out and spiritualizing things, allegorizing things that are from the Old Testament. But for us to do it, I mean, we're not apostles. We're not inspired by the Holy Spirit. So it's very shaky ground for someone else to do that with Scripture. And an amillennialist wouldn't be for that in any other case, but they have to do it to hold their position on the end times. And... Historically speaking, it's a very slippery slope that I would not want to go down myself. And real quick, if you're wondering what spiritualizing the text is, here's an example. This is an extreme example, but this is the one that popped into my head. They would say things like, all right, here's the story of Isaac meeting Rebecca, and Isaac is coming in on a camel. And they would like take this huge leap, and they would make a case to say, this camel right here represents the bus ministry of the local church. And I hope you're laughing right now because that is ridiculous. But that's something that a pastor has actually said before. I've heard it. All right. In effect, the way they interpret end times prophecy opens the door to that same loose, carefree, problematic behavior with the text. And I don't think an amillennialist would like me saying that. And, you know, they I'm sure they would would disagree with me saying that. But, hey, you're getting my pre-mill viewpoint in this overview. And to me, it is the same thing. The other key component which comes into play, which, granted, is a secondary issue, is the separation of Israel and the church. Most premillennialists hold a sharp distinction between Israel and the church. They're not the same. Most Amil brothers and sisters are going to be 
covenant theologians, and they are going to say that the church is spiritual Israel. And if you've never heard of this, don't worry about it. <laughs> Maybe you're all into it as, as well. Again, we're all going to be in heaven together. This is a secondary issue. But this does practically affect how you view Israel. So here's another reason how it does matter in your daily life right now. If you're a premillennialist, you see God working with one group of people primarily at a time. In the Old Testament, God primarily worked through the nation of Israel. In the New Covenant, the church, it's the mystery. It was not foreseen. And God is working in and through the local church. That's his plan A right now. At the close of the church age, the rapture, God turns his attention back to Israel and restores Israel and brings everything full circle with them. So if you have this mindset, you aren't as tied to Israel nationalistically. The way I look at it is, as a premillennialist, Israel rejected their Messiah. They have suffered immensely. And we don't have to be in bed with Israel to be blessed. A true dyed-in-the-wool amillennialist who is consistent with their position is going to lean much more heavily into the Judeo-Christian ethic. We have to be allies with Israel because if we aren't, we can't be blessed by God. Now, that bleeds over into the post-mill position as well. I know it gets really confusing if you can imagine the old... The old map up on the board with all the strings pointing in different directions. A lot of these do have overlap and they all influence one another. So you will still hear a little bit of that coming from a pre-mill believer. But if you do, it's a remnant of the old school post-mill influence that merged a little with the dispensational Baptist in the 70s and 80s. The more you look at church history, the more these things can get confusing because so many different layers converge and influence each other. And sometimes it does all blend together. It's kind of fun to look at church history and see how all of these things crisscross. But premillennialists, what I'm trying to say here is premillennialists don't have to be that tied to the nation of Israel right now. Because God's working through the church right now. We will evangelize those who are in Judaism. We don't look down on Jews in any way. They're people made in God's image. I mean, those are God's people. Jesus was a Jew. But we also know that God is going to finish his work in them. And I believe he's going to do that when I'm gone. Okay, so I'm going to do my part right now. But God's going to fix that. And it's not going to be me. So there's a lot of reasons practically how this affects your walk and how it shapes the way you think. And now that I have summarized the first two views, let me now make my case for pre-trib premillennialism. And by now you can tell David is pre-mill. I don't normally talk about it this much. Most of you who've been in our church probably didn't know that unless you specifically asked me which I've probably been asked like once or twice but in this podcast I'm talking about it more and I haven't left much room for doubt about that and I want to remind you I rarely talk about this not because it isn't important but I don't really get into all the terms and the specifics 
because there's so many more urgent things I counsel people through and talk about as a pastor. I do still think it's important and my views on it do shape the way I look at the world and they shape what I put my emphasis and focus on. But if you really want to go deep and have a robust understanding of what's going on in the world today and how it all shakes out, your position will matter, as I hope I've pointed out to you up to this point. Now, I will touch on Amil a little more, but let's shift our focus to pre-mill right now. You also have a few different positions of premillennialism. And one more time for the kids in the back. For this position, you agree that the rapture is a real event that happens for the church. Pre-millennium. But the question arises, are you now post-trib pre-mill? Meaning you believe the rapture happens before the millennium, but after the tribulation, that's post-trib pre-mill? Are you mid-trib pre-mill? Meaning you believe the rapture happens at the very middle of the tribulation and, of course, before the millennium? Or are you pre-trib pre-mill? Meaning you believe the rapture happens before the tribulation and then after the tribulation, Christ comes back on the white horse, ready to judge the nations and usher in the millennium before the new earth. The same order you see in Revelation. Now, this is where the Amil believers will say, what's the point of the millennium? If Christ is just going to make a new heaven and new earth, isn't it the same thing? And that's a whole nother rabbit trail to get into. And I would admit, this is where it gets a tad wobbly for the premillennialist. In the pre-mill position, where you have a rapture, the church is gone, now off of earth, church age is over, we're at the Bema seat, the judgment seat of Christ, up in heaven, and this is where you look at Revelation 4 on, like that, that whole scene from Revelation 4 through 5, 6, chapter 7, the setting is in heaven, it's the church's view of the tribulation period from that heavenly view. So it fits. But in the first three and a half years of the tribulation period are fine. Like things are going well. The Antichrist is just popular, getting more and more power and control. The last three and a half years are when it all goes crazy. And two thirds of the earth's population dies. You can make that case during that 70th week of Daniel tribulation period, time of Jacob's trouble. There's all kinds of Old Testament names for this. And then in Revelation 19, Christ comes back with the church saints and he rules and reigns for a thousand years. But even in that thousand year period on earth, there are still, and this is where you really need to think through this, there are still people who were saved during the tribulation and they had children. And so you have all these generations who live on the earth the way it was intended to be in the garden. And the Bible makes it very clear. Satan is bound up during that time. He is not on the earth. There is no satanic presence. There, there's no demonic presence. Jesus Christ is ruling and reigning on the earth. But then when he is released at the end of the thousand years in Revelation 20, verses 7 through 10, 
he again comes back with a vengeance and he deceives a multitude of people again. And this is where some of those same human hearts, you know, you have generations of people who they're a human, they're, they've lived during the millennium, they turn on God, they never genuinely repented of their sin, they turn on God, and at the Battle of Armageddon, Jesus defeats their armies with a word, and then he creates the new heaven and the new earth. Now that's a lot. For every box to be checked, and I just blew through that very fast, but for every box to be checked with a thousand percent certainty is a pretty tough case to make. Let's have a little grace with this. Let's hold this loosely. We are talking about secondary issues here, and I fully admit that. There has to be graciousness, and there has to be humility. I believe that's the closest view. But I'm not going to separate over anyone about it. It isn't primary. It is secondary. Now, it does matter. I just spent a lot of time describing why it matters. But it's not something to argue about. It's something to study if you feel led to do so. And if you do, it will draw you into hungering the return of Christ. It will also give you hope and confidence. So let me go through the reasons why I'm a pre-trib. The rapture happens before the tribulation pre-millennialists and some of these are going to sound familiar a little bit of overlap but here's the list biggest one i don't allegorize a massive number of passages and i do take a more literal approach while at the same time acknowledging that it is prophetic literature you can hold both of those positions at the same time and you don't have to choose one or the other but let's talk about literal interpretation because this is a huge point. Consistent literal interpretation is essential to properly understanding what God is saying in the Bible. And this is where a lot of people get lost on the end times. When I say literal interpretation, of course I don't mean we're just throwing out the context and expression and all literary nuance and we're just taking it all literally. No. Literal interpretation of the Bible simply means to explain the original sense of the Bible according to the normal and customary usage of language. So how is this done? It can only be accomplished through the grammatical, according to the rules of grammar, historical, consistent with the historical setting of the passage, contextual, in accord with its context, method of interpretation. A literal interpretation recognizes that a word or phrase can be used either plainly or figuratively, connotative. So if I say, my team won the game, that's plain English. Now, I could say the same thing in a more colorful way. I could say it figuratively, right? We own them or we took it to them. That's connotative. An important point to be noted is that even though we may use a figure of speech to refer to the victory, we are using that figure of speech to refer to an event that literally happened. Some interpreters are mistaken to think that just because a figure of speech may be used to describe event, cloaked language in some way, like John doesn't know, quite know how to explain this, that the event is not literally going to happen in the future. 
The golden rule of interpretation has been developed to help us discern whether or not a figure of speech was intended by the author. When the plain sense of scripture makes common sense, seek no other sense. And here's the dirty secret that my post-mill and on-mill friends don't like me saying. The principle of consistent literal interpretation, historical grammatical literal interpretation, where, yeah, we, we get there's figures of speech. It's still referring to something that's happening. When you interpret the Bible that way, you are logically led to the pre-trib, pre-mill position. Coming from a pre-trib, pre-mill person as myself. This means that the prophetic portions of the Bible are interpreted like any other subject matter in Scripture. The prophetic sections of the Bible use the same conventions of language found throughout the Bible. Even Revelation itself, just the way you read it. Yeah, I get it. It's apocalyptic. Understood. We're on the same page. But how does the book of Revelation read? Well, the first three chapters are written to the church. And then the scene changes to heaven. And you have the trumpet, the same thing you hear in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. You have the church entering heaven. And for a few chapters, you see what it's like as the church age is now closed and, and the Christians are in heaven, in this other realm with Christ looking down on earth during the tribulation period. And then it starts describing the tribulation from the perspective of heaven. The church isn't seen or heard on the earth the entire time. Then in Revelation 19, the second coming of Christ, back to the earth, which looks a lot different than him appearing in the clouds to take up the Christians. This time he's coming down, riding a white horse with the church. And then you have chapter 20, the millennium. And then you have chapter 21 and 22. At the end of chapter 20, Satan is released at the end of the millennium. And then you have chapters 21 and 22, the new heaven and the new earth. That's the way you read Revelation, just sequenced out. Now, Amillennials will explain all of this away. It's just windows. It's not a clear timeline. Sure, but when you take everything else Scripture says and you plug it into that grid— you have a pretty clear timeline. So that's huge. When you see this, it's just like, whoa, your eyes are opened. Like, it's not as hazy as people make it out to be. It's really not. So that's my point on interpreting historically, grammatically, and literally. Here's another point. Awaiting the imminent return of Christ. That is clearly what the early church believed. It's the hope of the church in 1 Peter 1. It's the incentive to godly living in 1 John 2. It inspires watchfulness in Matthew 24. It challenges the apathetic to wake up and return to Jesus in Romans 13. It warns the ungodly in 1 Thessalonians 5 and in 2 Thessalonians 1. It gives stability and comfort in the time of adversity and bereavement, James 5. 2 Corinthians 4, 17-18, and of course, 1 Thessalonians 4. It's an incentive to faithful service in 1 Corinthians 5. And above all, it draws our hearts to worship God who is in complete control. And it allows us to rest in Him who will accomplish His plan in history. Here's another one. 
and I could go on, but I think I'm just going to deep dive into this one and end on this. Scripture indicates numerous times two phases of Christ's second coming. And, and when I saw this one, this is really the one that sealed it for me. Now, you don't have two phases of Christ's return in any of the other views. It's not in post-mill. It's not in Amil at all. Of course not. So I do want to spend a little time on this one. Acts 111 teaches a future literal and visible return of the Lord Jesus Christ to this earth. This is also seen in Revelation 1-7 as well. This has to be something else other than the rapture because the rapture is spoken of as a secret. The 1 Thessalonians 4 description of the rapture parallels John 14, 1-3, and you can check that out sometime. They're both in the exact same sequential order. But when you carefully look at scripture, you can see a contrast between the two different phases within the second coming of Jesus Christ. And the first phase is the rapture, where the church saints are snatched away at the end of the church phase. The second is what premillennialists will call the revelation, which is the glorious appearance of Christ to the earth. This occurs at the end of the tribulation and ushers in the millennium. So let me just go through this. It'd be easy to see this on a graph chart, but it's an audio podcast. So I'm just going to share it with you and you can do it in your head here. At the rapture, Jesus comes in the clouds. First Thessalonians 4.17 Revelation 4.1. At the revelation, Jesus comes down to the earth. Acts 1.11, Revelation 1.7, Zechariah 14, Revelation 19. At the rapture, Christ comes for his saints. 1 Thessalonians 4, 2 Thessalonians 2, John 14.3. At the revelation, Christ comes with his saints. Revelation 19, 1 Thessalonians 3.13, Jude 1.4. At the rapture, Christ comes as the bridegroom. Ephesians 5, Matthew 25, 2 Corinthians 11. At the revelation, Christ comes as the judge and the ruler. Revelation 19, Zechariah 14 again. At the rapture, Christ's coming brings comfort. 1 Thessalonians 4.18. At the revelation, Christ's coming will be met with weeping. 1 Thessalonians 5, Zechariah 12. At the rapture, only believers will see Jesus, 1 Thessalonians 4. At the revelation, every eye shall see him, Revelation 1-7. Concerning the rapture, no signs preceded Christ's coming. Concerning the revelation, there are signs that will precede Christ's coming. Did you catch that? This is a big one. Concerning the rapture, there's no signs that precede Christ's coming. But for the revelation, which is coming at the end of the tribulation period, yeah, Jesus talked about some signs there that will precede that coming. Okay? So how could those be the same thing? They have to be different, right? 2 Thessalonians 2.3 teaches that the revelation could not occur until the Antichrist first appeared on the scene and came to power. He will eventually rule the world and exalt himself as a god. Luke 21, 25-28 describes events that will occur during the tribulation period. These are signs that the Lord's return to earth in all of his glory would take place soon. 
At the rapture, God's people will be resurrected and delivered from the wrath of God. At the revelation, unsaved people will be slain and experience God's wrath. Concerning the rapture, the focus is always on the Lord and the church. This is another big one. This is a nice way to tightly organize it. Concerning the rapture, the focus is always on the Lord and the church. Concerning the revelation, the focus is on Israel and the kingdom. It's on his kingdom, and it's on a different group of people. After the rapture, the world is deceived, 2 Thessalonians 2, 3-12. At the revelation, the deceiver, Satan, is bound and cast into hell, Revelation 20. That's the beginning of the millennium, the glorious appearing of Christ. Here's one more. Concerning the rapture, the tribulation period sequentially follows Christ's coming. Concerning the revelation, the millennium follows Christ's coming back to the earth. And I've gone through that timeline once or twice here already, but it really sequentially just falls into place as you just naturally read through Revelation, and then you piece together all the other portions of prophecies that you see, they neatly do fit into that timeline. Revelation 19 speaks of Christ's second coming and his glorious appearing, and then immediately after that in Revelation 20, John speaks of the millennium, the millennial reign of Christ. In Revelation 20 verses 4 through 6, it speaks of God's saints who will live and reign with Christ for a thousand years. In Luke 21, Jesus mentions some signs that will occur during the tribulation period. He gives a warning to be on the lookout for these signs. Then he said, you will see these things come to pass. Know that the kingdom of God is at hand. Again, there's the kingdom. There, there's the end of the tribulation. So if you don't have two phases of Christ's return, I don't know what you do with all of this. Because... It's saying different things are happening in different orders. And two, it says completely different things, period. You would have a contradiction on the imminent return of Christ in that case. So I hope you can see here where I'm coming from. No amount of apocalyptic language is going to erase all of this. Taken together, this evidence is pretty strong. Without two phases of Christ's return, you do have a jumbled mess and you just have to end up spiritualizing everything. But by interpreting scripture naturally, you can map out a timeline, even through the imagery. And it doesn't matter that John was using phrases to describe things that he couldn't put into words. What matters is we have a plethora of material that lays out a glorious hope for the church and even for the Jew. Christ wins. It's going to be incredible. God is going to accomplish his will. And this is where I want to stop. Now, I haven't even scratched the surface of the half of it. The present day church age in the last days is described in 2 Timothy 3, the distinction between Israel and the church, the specifics on the tribulation, and the purpose of the tribulation. There's so much more there. I'm going to leave it up to you. This is a lot to put together. <laughs> but if I hear enough people that want me to do more spinoff episodes, I may do that. But for now, I'm going to leave it here. 
I think this will really help you as we go into Second Thessalonians as a church. But I want you to revel in the glory of God. He has a marvelous plan, and he will bring it to fullness and completion. He is going to win with authority, and there is going to be no doubt about it. And when I look at Revelation, I get excited. It's one of my favorite books. Having this understanding doesn't hurt you. It helps you. It gets you excited about what's to come. But whatever your belief, this is the key. I don't want you to be casual and apathetic about it. I want to steer your heart towards the return of Christ and the glory of God. Just talking about this, talking about him ruling and reigning, talking about him changing people's hearts, talking about him judging wickedness and punishing the evildoer. I mean, this is who God is. It makes me worship God. I hope it does for you as well. His kingdom will come. His will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's our prayer. And how we live our lives right now matters for eternity. So look up and look out. Are you ready? If you have any questions or thoughts, please reach out to me. You can connect with me directly through my email, david at doxaupstate.church. And if a friend shared this podcast with you, and this is the first time you've ever heard it, this isn't normally an end times podcast, but please give us a follow, give us a review. I love this topic. It excites me and it comforts me and it's thrilling to dig into God's word and study it. Like a true, robust study of the end times builds your hope and confidence and your excitement in God's word. So please don't minimize it. Don't let people zap your hunger for it. God's word is deep. Reach in. It gives us way more than you realize. It satisfies. Looking forward to hearing from you. And until next time, you are loved. Got trampled on the floor. I wish we'd all been ready. The children died, the days grew cold. A piece of bread could buy a bag of gold. I wish we'd all been ready. And there's no time to change your mind. The sun has come and you've been left behind A man and wife asleep in bed She hears a noise and turns her head He's gone I wish we'd all been ready Two men 
one disappears and one's left standing still. I wish we'd all been ready. There's no time to change your mind. The sun now.